Okay, we're going to continue our Foundation of Marriage series, and we're going to talk about what's the purpose? What are we even doing here? We're going to talk about what is marriage and what is the purpose. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the gracious gifts that you have bestowed upon us, that which we don't deserve. Uh, bless us here this morning, Lord, to understand marriage better, to understand your covenant with us, to understand the gospel better, and to uh, let that transition into vibrant worship here this morning. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <coughs> and so, uh, so as we continue our, our marriage series, uh, we have to get into, so what is it? What is, uh, we talked about what is a covenant last week and the, the covenant of giving my life for your life, and that's the basis of this covenant, but that's the basis of every covenant. And so what makes this covenant different? What is specific about this covenant, and why do we have it? And so generally, if you don't know the why, if you don't know why you're doing it or what the purpose is, then you can't or won't fulfill the how of how, how you go about fulfilling whatever purpose that is. And so you should have an outline in your bulletins today. I try to only do the front page of, of a, a piece of paper. And so literally all I could fit were the scripture sheets. And, and so that's all you get. Uh, if you don't take anything of what I say, just read the scripture verses and you'll figure it out. And so what makes this covenant different uh, in marriage is marriage is primarily a covenant around a sexual union. Marriage is, there's no other uh, covenant, there's no other covenant structure we see that isn't based on a sexual union. <clears throat> and so, within that context, we're going to find out uh, what is the purpose of, of marriage. And so we always want to figure out the purpose before we figure out the how. And so normally the way the world defines the purpose of marriage is, uh, maybe you're in a you like a person, you kind of have some warm, tingly feelings for them, and you can upgrade to marriage. It's like a, it's like a plus. It's a bonus. It's like you kind of like them, and you want to take it to the next level, and you might get married. Uh, the, mar or the world might say that, that marriage makes you happy. It's for the purpose of your contentment and your happiness. It's all about you. If it doesn't make you happy, then either... Change it to make you happy or find a new one. Uh, marriage, the world might say that marriage is a social construct and you get tax benefits. I'm going to get married just because I get tax benefits. You don't hear that one much, but uh, I did hear that one recently. <laughs> I literally did. I said, then why, after a conversation with a gentleman and said, so then why are you getting married? And he said, well, uh, for the tax benefits. <laughs> I said, Okay. I'm still waiting to see those tax benefits. Still paying them. <clears throat> there used to be a bigger, a bigger gap. Well, when they take 40% and, you, and maybe it comes, goes down to 35, you don't see much. No. So, so anyways, as I alluded to last week, we saw that the, the first marriage between Adam and Eve was the prototype in, in Genesis throughout Scripture, and that... Uh, mainly it's between one man, one woman, and they are on mission together. And so if you're on mission, you need to know what the mission is in order to how to, how to do it and how to succeed. And so the, in the Westminster uh, Shorter and Larger Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is 
to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you could apply that to anything. What's the chief end of marriage? There you go. You guys got it. And so the chief end of marriage is ultimately to glorify God and to enjoy him. If you're looking to get married or you're in a marriage and you don't enjoy God more through your spouse, then something's really wrong. Something's really off. <clears throat> Moreover, then you can kind of trace it backwards and you're probably not glorifying God. And so that is the ultimate purpose. Uh, but we're going to look at it a little bit more specifically, uh, what is the purpose? Because when we say that, we could use that as a blanket statement and be like, yeah, uh, to glorify God and enjoy him. Good. All right. Next. Uh, but then you've got to think about how do you glorify God in your marriage? How do you enjoy him in your marriage? And so how has he designed it to be? And so... <clears throat> Like I said, in, throughout this whole series, we're going to be looking at primarily in, in Genesis where we see this prototype marriage is, but we're going to look at, uh, I think it's five things in your outline that uh, are directly stated for the purpose of marriage throughout scripture. Most of those you find in Genesis. And so you find uh, at least the first ones that I have listed for um, in Genesis 1 through 4, that marriage is for companionship. It's a sexual bond, and the purpose is for being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, that is to raise up godly offspring. And subsequent, you can draw out from the rest of these from, from Genesis, but in subsequent didactic teachings, uh, we're going to see that marriage is an outlet for love, respect, and service, and it's a preparation for ministry or a litmus test for whether you should be in ministry or not. <clears throat> And so marriage is primarily about these five things. And that's how we, uh, that's how we glorify God and, and how we enjoy him. And through these things, we should give, be able to give more glory to God and enjoy him more fully. And so let's go through the first one. These are more uh, Socratic and, and building on top of each other. And so the first one is companionship, Genesis 2.18 then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper. I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him. And so in the very first uh, couple of chapters of Genesis, we're seeing that in all these good things that God creates, the first thing that is not good is that the man is alone. And, and so he creates a, a companion, a helper fit for him. And so it doesn't say uh, companion, it says, it says a helper, but I really love uh, when Noel and I were, were recording and we were talking about what do we love, uh, what do we really, we didn't say love, what do we really like about each other? And uh, until we got engaged, we didn't, didn't use the L word. And so we, one of the things that came up for us was I just, we just really love companionship. And it literally means to break bread together. And so, and you can kind of, I'm kind of using that to infer that in Genesis, they did some eating. They did, there was a lot of fruit. They did some eating. Most of, most of it was good. There was some eating that was bad, and that's why we're in this mess. But, but it's, it's, God designed the marriage covenant first for companionship, someone to eat with, someone to do life together, uh, someone to be there, right? It's not good that he is, is alone. Uh, one of my... Uh, I don't know, a favorite, but a, a proverb that I really like is Proverbs 2, I think it's, or I'm sorry, it's Proverbs 18 two, 
that whoever isolates himself seeks his own destruction and, uh, and goes against all uh, wise judgment. That's paraphrased. And so when you're isolated, you get into some really weird spaces. Has anybody known anybody who's just like, uh, spends a lot of time alone in their house? They usually think weird thoughts. They usually start going crazy if you do it for long enough, right? And it's because being alone is bad for you. Whether, now, that doesn't mean that if you don't get married, you're going to go crazy. You might think that. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't mean you will. You might. But, but uh, that's just because we're, we're creatures built for fellowship. We're built to fellowship with one another. <coughs> and, and God designed uh, the marriage covenant to that you would have somebody that you would understand fellowship more fully, that you would understand fellowship within the Trinity more fully in, in this covenant relationship. And so then, skipping down to Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we have this innate desire for fellowship that was, you see in here that the, the man is breaking this covenant uh, bond that's been created in the family under his, under his parents, and he's using and he's transferring that bond from father and mother to his wife. And so, usually, when I sit down with single men who are beginning to court or something, and we're talking about it, uh, and I'm usually just encouraging them to read their Bible or whatever, and because that's what you always got to do. And I usually outline what life is like. If you want to just want to break it down into decades or or whatever. Um, you can, I usually break it down into like, you know, until you're 18, you're usually living with your parents and 18 to 25 is like, you could say those golden years is usually when you're single, single ish, and you've got as much time as you want. You can do whatever you want. You're usually out of your parents' house. You're free. You're, uh, coming into adulthood and you're not bound to a spouse, right? You got a lot of time. You got a lot of time to, to work hard. You got a lot of time to play hard. You got a lot of time to, and energy to do whatever you want. Uh, and that's all you get. Uh, and then so just in general terms, you know, 26 to, to 28-ish, 26, 27, 28, if you get married in that range, then, or really just the first couple years of marriage, then in general circumstances, you are married without children. And you enjoy marriage without children, and you guys are both like, we're free, we get to do things together, we love this. And you have a little bit less freedom because you're not by yourself, but you enjoy the benefits of marriage, and, and uh, it's usually a, a couple years before, before you have children. And then uh, from that time on until you're about 50, 55, 60, if you, depends on how many children you have, you are bound to raising children. That is a good half of your life, or almost half of your life, of where you're married, raising children. So from whenever you have children, 26, 27, whatever, until about like 55, you are in the uh, trenches raising kids, you're in, in everything that entails. And you don't have a lot of free time. And from that point on, for, for 20 to 30 years, you're not free. You don't have free time. You are raising children. You're bound to other people and their schedules. 
that you guys build together. And so then back about 56, just using these general terms, after your empty nesters, you have about another 25 to 30 years where it's just you two. Then you have grandchildren, uh, but you're not obligated to see them every day. You've got grandchildren, you've got other uh, things, and then you're generally you're on the path of retirement, pretty close to it, and uh, as far as living inside your household, it's back to just you and your spouse. And, <clears throat> and what you want to do is, is conduct your marriage, conduct your relationships in a way that when you return to that, that is your end. And then uh, generally people die with their spouse, not die with their spouse, but they're, they're the closest relationship. Their kids are maybe close enough to be close to them, and that's a huge blessing. But generally it's just you and your spouse living together for another 20 to 30 years. And so you want to conduct your marriage in a way where your companionship through all the trenches of raising kids for 20, 30 years, when it's just you guys empty nesters, that it's like you guys picked it up when you were 26. Like, we're back to 26. We're no kids, and, and you have that type of, uh, of, of relationship. And so it is many marriages, I don't know what the statistics are, but it's, it's many marriages do fail at that point when they're empty nesters because they didn't know how to relate to each other. They didn't have the companionship through the, uh, the, the raising children. They were doing it for raising children. They wanted to get to that, and then it's just then they're like, oh, yeah, it's just us. What do we do? Well, I don't remember. That was 30 years ago. Uh, and so you, you want to have a, a vision for your marriage that you're con continually building your companionship, building your fellowship together, so that when you get to that point, <clears throat> that you guys are just off, off running together or walking slowly because you're not, 20, not in your 20s anymore, right? Because children, they, they're, you, God did not design it for your children to be with you forever. I hope that they are not in your house forever. Uh, they are designed, God designed it, that they would, they would come and then they would go. Friends come and go, right? Family comes and goes. You don't have any other type of relationship like this within your family that, uh, that you're in, in close proximity like that. You know, even churches, people move those reasons, and your church family comes and goes for various reasons. But your spouse was designed by God to be that companion till, till death. And so you want to live in, in such a way that you're constantly building companionship. So on to the fun one. Next one. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so the next thing, God, after companionship, you enter into the covenant of, of marriage. God designed marriage for sexual pleasure. Uh, it's also a guard against primarily sexual immorality and just other sin in general. And, and God has set this in, in motion so that you would have an outlet for for sexual pleasure, because we are not just beings created for fellowship, we're beings, we are sexual creatures. And so we're also, uh, it is a guard against sexual immorality. That's the biggest commendation we see, or the biggest warning we see in Scripture uh, when it comes to 
to sin within marriage, and then, and then sin just in general. And so naked and unashamed, that's a good place to start when you're married. Uh, and so God said that this was good. This was a covenant based around a sexual union, right? All other sexual relationships are bad. So if you wanted to think in binary terms of marriage covenant, sex good, every other relationship, sex bad, there you go. You can press that into the corners and see where that goes, right? And so uh, that is a, a primary function of, of marriage is the, uh, the outlet for sexual pleasure that builds companionship, that builds fellowship. And again, what you want to do is, is be in and you want to build towards a, a marriage or relationship where Abraham was, what was he, 90 when the, the promise was blessed to him uh, for Isaac? And he, he had to be a pretty healthy guy. The first miracle uh, was that they were still having sex in their 90s and 80s. <laughs> so, uh, but they, he acted in faith. He had to act in faith. And so you want to live in a healthy lifestyle where I think we've been bombarded in our culture where, uh, not, maybe not bombarded, but we've been told in general terms that uh, once you hit like your, your 50s and your 60s, old people... Uh, in a sexual relationship is, is gross and bad, and I don't surely don't want to think about it too much, but uh, <laughs> but that's the end for you and your spouse, right? It's, there's no point at which I see uh, outside of health reasons that it should it should end, and so you should be enjoying your spouse in a sexual relationship in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, uh, when it's just you guys, empty nesters. There you go. And so not just for sexual pleasure, it's a guard against sexual immorality. So 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 7, 7 uh, says, Do you not, <coughs> excuse me, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the, t the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Are you not your own? You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so he's saying flee sexual morality, and then his next, in the chapter break here, he goes into, uh, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, for it is it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt, tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so he's saying directly in the context of, of fleeing sexual morality that you have, uh, you have rights and that your spouse has rights to a sexual union. And not that you should demand your rights, but that you should give them their rights. 
right? A person who demands their rights over and lords it over when my rights are wrapped up in you is a tyrant, right? If I say, I need you to do this because it's my right that you do this, right? Same thing comes with, uh, which we'll get into in subsequent weeks, like with a, if a man saying a woman must submit and constantly tells his wife to submit, he's a tyrant. You don't get submission by forcing it, right? Then it's not submission or it's not proper submission. And so the same thing here is that God designed the sexual relationship within a marriage to be a guard against sexual immorality. And you want to give that to your spouse to help them, right? You don't want to... Uh, uh, and Paul here isn't arguing that you have rights and you should enforce them. He's saying you have, your spouse has rights and you should give it to them. See the difference? That me standing up here and saying, I've got rights, you've got to give me what my right is and I demand it and I need it. Opposed to you have rights, let me make sure that you get your rights fulfilled. Right? There's a big difference. It's in... It's seeing the covenant as I'm giving myself to you, not making sure that you give yourself to me. And so uh, to demand your rights in that sense would, would go against what Ephesians 5 talks about, the husband's being unloving. And for the sake of your spouse, um, you know, most people would uh, agree or at least think that the, the sexual morality, even in here, prostitution is mostly men seeking, seeking women for sex. But, and that's true, that that's generally the case, but it is for both men and women, he says here, a guard against sexual immorality. And so uh, you want to give yourself away in the context of the marriage so to help them. And so uh, the marriage covenant is designed for a guard against sexual morality. And also just sit in general. Second Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God <clears throat> with idols? And so this is a general guard against sin that I want to draw out. If... Uh, if you're married to an unbeliever, if you got into a relationship with, a, with an unbeliever, what fellowship do you have? You don't have any fu fundamental ideology or, or worship that is similar. You are all doing things. One party is doing things to glorify God and enjoy him, and one party is not, right? And so I think this is, uh, just drawing this verse out to see, use an inference that the, the marriage covenant is designed to, to keep you focused on Christ, to focus on what your mission is, to uh, be un be, be, uh, have a union together that is constantly brought back to fellowship with, with Christ. And um, I don't know about you, but when I get a little off track, <laughs> I'm glad my spouse is there to set me straight. Can we get an amen? Amen. <laughs> you know, amen. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. <clears throat> right? And there's a, but just a, well, I think I'll get the, into this more when we talk about getting into preparation for ministry. There is a difference when you're looking for a spouse and getting into a covenant that puts the qualification as, as you do not marry an unbeliever. That is an absolute no-no in scripture. I wouldn't even, uh, the person, I don't even know if I would attend that wedding. 
But that is not a reason scripturally to get out of covenant. Once you're in covenant and you convert to Christ uh, and your spouse doesn't, then you are still committed to that covenant. You still glorify God and enjoy him. But the difference is he's putting that in as you're, as you're courting, as you're dating. You're looking for uh, a believer because what fellowship? How are they going to help you? How are, they, how are you guys going to be on the same track? You guys don't have the same, same mindset. <clears throat> and so the logical outcome of, of a sexual union is the next purpose of marriage is godly offspring. <laughs> Amen. We've got to clap for that. So Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so most of life is binary in, in general senses. And you either have, and you are either, everybody is either a seed of the woman or a seed of the serpent. You get two options. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. Things are either up or they are down. You're either in or you're out. There's no, uh, you're either in a room or you're outside. You're inside or you're outside. And in most of life, there is a binary option. And, and in this case, <coughs> excuse me, that, that you are either a seed of the woman, and that is what God designed in Genesis. And we, we see, we'll see other didactic scriptures that God is seeking godly offspring, but he has designed a marriage covenant, a sexual union, in order that he would have covenant children, that he would have uh, God-honoring fellowship with with those children. And so that is a primary, a focal design of the covenant union. Malachi 2.15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. That's what he wanted, right? And so most of your life, if you want to, uh, this is easily brought out in Ecclesiastes. If you look at the, just the way history is, is all from Adam and Eve and all the way through, the, through Christ and through the, the church age now, we have that God wants you to, uh, a primary focus of your life for general, generally speaking, uh, there are, are a small portion of people that God doesn't design this, design this for. But generally speaking, he designs that you get married, you have children, you teach them about Christ, they convert to Christ so that they will get married, produce godly offspring, so they'll teach their children about Christ, so that they'll get married and have godly offspring and teach their children about Christ, so they get married and that they have children and they teach their children about Christ. That's the way it is. And so... That is a primary focus, and it's really easy to get into the weeds of, of life and be like, well, we got to do all this and this and this and this and this and get away from that primary focus. Or you might be thinking in your station of, well, what's the purpose? You know, if, uh, why are we doing all that? Like, what are we, we're not doing anything that matters, or you get just caught with drudgery or, or depression. And it's, well, every day that you're fellowshipping together in a covenant union within marriage and you're raising children to love God, that is your purpose. That comes out every day. That comes out at the dinner table. That comes out when you drop them off to school. That comes out in in every moment that you're spending with them is an opportunity to push them and encourage them and teach them about our Lord. Um, And so 
focus, so particularly wanting children and, uh, and raising them is a primary focus of, of the Christian life. And so uh, we live in, uh, again, this is like the third time I said it, we live in a time where a lot of things are just really weird, and it's almost a normal expectation that if you had like four kids, five kids, two or three of them might reject the Lord, two or three of them might not, and that's a normal expectation. I don't think that's a normal expectation in, in Scripture. And so uh, that does happen, but I don't think it's a normal expectation. So Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so, one thing we do, or one thing I bring out in our family devotions, you know, when we do them, uh, is that we're teaching our children, we're teaching Lily so that she will teach our grandchildren. It says right here that, that your sons and your son's sons. And so when you're teaching your children, you're teaching your grandchildren. And you should instill a purpose in your children that they have to teach, my, they have to teach your grandchildren. That's their obligation and their duty. That's how they honor their parents. That's how they honor, and, and, and that's how they would honor their, their children in that sense. And so a failure to teach your children, a failure to raise your children in the Lord, is a failure to raise your grandchildren. And um, hopefully in the pressing in the corners, we can talk about uh, how to do that, Right? But that's a huge focus of Scripture is that God is covenantal. Primarily, the covenant is passed down generationally. And you've only got two options anyways. You're either born in the covenant and you keep the covenant, or you get converted and you join the covenant, and then it's expected that your kids are in the covenant and they keep passing it down, right? And there's more, uh, and that's how God does attrition. And so, fourth, uh, thing that God has designed marriage for is an outlet for love, respect, and service. And so Ephesians 5.3, <clears throat> however, and you can read the whole section to, you guys know what it, probably what it says about husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. And he concludes with, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so this is, I think this is a little bit paradoxical is because it is a command, and so it's hard to do. You need to be reminded, Paul doesn't tell us anything or command us anything to do that we don't need to be commanded to do. Or else he wouldn't tell it, he would just be like, he would just not say anything. And so there's this paradox where it's a command, it has, it's in the scriptures, so we often don't do it. Yet, the more godly you get, the more, the more a husband goes on a path of, of seeking Christ, the more he is going to want to give himself in love to his wife, or, to, or just if it's a single man, an outlet 
He needs an outlet for love. He needs an outlet for, for I have all this stuff from Christ in me. What do I do with it? <laughs> right? And so it's a little bit of a paradox because you have to be commanded to do it. <clears throat> Yet, the more you progress in Christ, the more it just naturally bubbles out of you. And, you, and God designed marriage as an outlet for that. Men naturally, when it says that husbands, uh, when you love your wives, you're loving your own body. And so when a husband gives uh, to his wife, she usually returns like tenfold, right? Women have a natural capacity to return. You give them, uh, you give them one, they give you five back. Uh, they're, they're usually designed that way. Uh, husband goes to work, he gets, he, all he has is a, is a paycheck and a handful of cash, and he's like, I could, I could buy Wendy's or McDonald's, and that's what I got. And he gives it over to the wife, she buys food, she buys groceries, and she makes a whole meal out of it, something a man normally can't do. So he gave a little, and he got a lot. And so uh, generally, we need, a men need an outlet for love, and women need an outlet for respect. And so uh, sometimes that's hard because your wife isn't as lovely or your husband isn't as respectable, and, but that's why the command is there. But uh, God had designed it that you need to bestow, a man needs to bestow his love somewhere, and a woman needs to bestow her respect somewhere. And because you have all this in you, is, is if you're a godly individual, it's, it's bubbling up and it's easier but you need some outlet for it. You need an outlet for service, right? Our Lord says in Luke 10, uh, I'll just read verse, <clears throat> verse 29, when, because uh, that's all I have on my paper and probably time for. But he desiring, that is the lawyer desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? And Jesus gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan where he is essentially saying the neighbor is the one within arm's reach. Right? The neighbor is the one that's closest to you. How do you love your neighbor? And if you ask, who is my neighbor? Well, your spouse is your closest neighbor. Right? Or the one you're seeking to marry is, is your closest neighbor. And, and so those are the relationships that you should seek to have more service in. We don't jump steps, and, and it's often it happens, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, that we... Uh, uh, I really do think men have a, a they're more, uh, I don't want to say portrayed as sinful because that's not true, but uh, men, men have a lot more responsibility, so they have a lot more commands in Scripture. And so this usually happens with men of where if you're not serving your wife, if you're not bestowing love, and we want to jump steps and, and look good, and we'll serve the church, we'll help our neighbors out, we'll do all this other thing, and then not bestow love and, and service to our, our wives or our, or our children. And so that is out of order, right? The first relationship that the Lord has put in place for us to uh, exude our gifts, exude our service, uh, our love, our respect is in, is in marriage and in the family. <clears throat> and so the fifth thing that God has designed marriage for as a primary focus is a preparation for ministry. 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 says, uh, this is uh, elder candidates. <clears throat> 
He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so if you read this backwards and, and saying if a man who, who can't manage his household well, he can't do ministry in the church publicly well, read that backwards, he's not ministering in the household well, right? Which means that the household is a ministry. And so I, I, maybe uh, that's a misnomer. It's not a preparation for ministry. It is ministry, right? If a person can't raise their kids to, to love and uh, obey the Lord, and um, in First Timothy, I'm sorry, in Timothy 1, it actually says that their children have to be believers in order for them to be elder candidates. And, and that's because if they can't, if they can't discipline them, if they can't raise them in an atmosphere that they would just be like, whatever they're about, I want to be about, then they're, they're probably not going to have a, a bigger public ministry that is any different, right? It's almost like saying if you can minister in your household well, if you could love your wife well, if you could raise your kids well, then you can take the next step and be an elder or a deacon, right? But it's a next step. You can't jump steps. And so... Uh, uh, that also means that you shouldn't go out and try to save the world before you minister to your family. Um, I would encourage every husband to put around set boundaries that if you're not doing family devotions, if you're not praying with your wife, if you're not uh, spending time with your kids, don't serve in the church. Don't go out and do anything else. Handle your family business first, and then once you have that managed, then go out and serve. And so, um, and so family life is ministry life, right? That is, I think that's a huge thing in Scripture. This, because there's someone as a pastor or an elder or a deacon or they have some kind of public ministry doesn't mean that they're more spiritual. It might mean that they have more character. And it might mean that they've uh, taken the commands of the Lord a little bit more seriously in, in practical steps for, for several years in their family, but it doesn't mean that they are doing more ministry. Because if you have a family, you have a ministry, you have a little church, <laughs> you've got people to minister to. And so that also means that church ministry is supposed to look more like family ministry, right? Uh, it's, it's often portrayed that in, in church ministry, we're just going to, if there's a problem with you, we're going to sit you down and we're going to do a Bible study and I'm gonna whack you with the Bible and uh, you're going to get it, you're going to straighten up, or you're going to get hurt, <laughs> or you're going to get a talking to, or whatever, right? And we have this idea sometimes that all we need to do is sit people down and do a hard, rigorous Bible study with them and then they'll get it. But that's not really how it works. That's not how it works. Try doing that with your family. And see how they receive it. <laughs> and when they, and when they don't receive it, sit them down and have a Bible study about not receiving it. <laughs> and, see, and see how that works. Right? Because family life with a spouse, with children, with whoever you're, you're living with and fellowshipping with, if it's a single brother's or, or single sister's household or whatever, is... More ministry is more what church ministry is supposed to look like than anything else, right? 
It's sitting down, fellowshipping, having dinners, looking to one another, right? Your kids know when, when you're being a hypocrite or not. Your wife knows. Your husband knows. They all know, except for you. Well, you do know, but you're not saying anything about it. And you're hoping they don't notice, but they notice. They know when you're a hypocrite because they see you every day. They know when you read the Bible or you sit down to read the Bible and you read a Bible story or a command and, and then it's like, oh, yeah, that looks a lot like me. And that's not what's... Not, not the good characters, <laughs> not the good ones. Uh, we just read last night about Abigail and, and Nabal and, how, and, and, uh, and Nabal being a bad man. And it's like you don't want, when you're reading, that you don't want your reading to, to be looking more like the bad characters that God portrays. We don't need more Nabals, we need more Abigails. And so, so family life, is a ministry, and it prepares you for more ministry because that is the, is the center of it. If you can't sit down and with your wife or with your husband, for that matter, or with your children and have discussions and lead them in the Lord and talk about it, then you can't do it anywhere else. You can't do it in the church. You can't do it at work. You can't do it anywhere else that would be, be effective. Uh, the end of the story is how you treat your, your wife or your, or your husband, how you treat your spouse, and how you raise your kids is a direct correlation to someone's fitness for other ministries. <clears throat> and so, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the way life goes is once you hit your 50s or your 60s, you're empty nesters, and at that time, you have about 30 years of ministry experience in raising kids. And that, when you're free, when you're in your 50s or your 60s, you should be more financially free. You've got more time. You're usually, when your kids are out of the house, you get a second burst of energy. And, and I think the way the Lord designs life is you should be looking to be more fruitful in your 50s and your 60s and into your 70s than any other time of your life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> Amen from anybody over, over 35, 36. <laughs> we only got a couple of you. <laughs> right? And so you want to set up your marriage. You want to set up your life that that's what you're looking for. That's what you're looking towards. Right? That's, it, even, it just happens in the world because that's the way God designed it is generally in business, men in their 60s, 50s, and 60s are more successful than than the younger generations. And so it's, it's because I think that's just the way God designed it. They had you know, 30 or 40 years at that point of, of business experience, failures, successes. And then once they're more free, they've got more time, uh, they might, may have more money, depending on how they conducted their life, then they can really take off. And so I would be mindful in your, in your marriage and the marriages you're, that you would, for single people looking to get in that, that is a primary focus, that you're arranging your, your finances, you're arranging, you know, your, just how you have dinner every day to have companionship and, and fellowship, that how you're arranging your life is you're expecting to be more fruitful once you hit 50 and 60. Because then, you, if you're free from a job you, and, or you're on the path of retirement and you're financially stable and you've got a bunch of time on your hands and you want to minister, you can minister as much as you want. You can do whatever you want. And if you're 
But the Lord designed that to where it opens up your schedule, it opens up your, your checkbook to be able to minister much more at that time. So I would encourage everybody to be, to be working on that path. And so that means we're all about the same age in our mid-20s to mid-30s. That means all of us are going to be hitting 50 or 60 at some time uh, in, the, in the near future. And if we're all prepared, that's a lot of people ministering, right? That's a lot of people doing ministry at that point. And so uh, we'll, we'll close with there. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to keep focused on, on the purpose that you've designed us to be in, in marriage. Bless the marriages, uh, to have companionship, to, to uh, be an outlet for, for sexual pleasure, for service, for respect, um, that we would produce godly offspring and that you would prepare us for ministry through the marriages you've designed and are designing for us. Through Jesus Christ, amen.